Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead here at the Grosvenor. A special welcome to any visitors. It's really good to have Sally from Brora. Um, she comes to Friday Friendship, and we do welcome you and hope you enjoy uh, the service here today. All that you need to know is written on the printed sheet and will appear on the screen as well. Thank you, Nancy. I can tell we're getting into summer. Uh, lots of people taking the opportunity to get away and enjoy the sunshine somewhere. And they've left us with a little bit of cloud, but hey-ho, never mind. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you are my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. <coughs> Let me abide in your tent forever and find refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. <coughs> you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Our first hymn this morning, God of mercy, God of grace, Show the brightness of your face and if you're able you are invited to stand as we sing together. So we're going to come to God in prayer now. And as is our custom here, I shall lead us in a short prayer. And at the end of that, we will join together in the words of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that connects us with all the people who were trying to follow Jesus across the world, in the past, in the present, and indeed in the future. So let's pray together. 
holy God, holy and merciful, holy and gracious, hear our prayers. For this new day, when we can take time out from our everyday pressures to focus our hearts and minds on you, we give you thanks. For this safe place, where we can meet without fear of arrest or persecution, we give you thanks. For each person, friend or visitor, who has chosen to be here, we give you thanks. Amazed at the wonder of your goodness, awed by the glory of your holiness, we offer our praise and thanks for another week of life in all its fullness. Aware of our humanity, needing your acceptance, we admit that we have not always lived in ways that honour you, and we are sorry. Holy God, holy and forgiving, holy and redeeming. Hear our prayers, which we offer now in our own languages and in the pattern Jesus gave his followers, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
wonder if anybody enjoys the TV programme, Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah, a few of you. Anybody seen any really interesting stories on there? Wendy? Okay, Danny Dyer descended from royalty. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Any others that have... Katrina? One of the ladies from Sex and the City was looking at her father because he'd run away when, they, when her sisters were little and he just started an entire new life in Australia. Okay. It was entirely just on that. Right, so somebody whose father had left the family when they were very small and just gone off to Australia and, and built himself a new life somewhere else. So we get kind of the extremes, don't we? We get people who discover they've got royal ancestry and we get people who discover they've got dodgy ancestry. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but when I watch it, I sometimes find resonances with my own family. Um, obviously, this recently I've been thinking a bit about, about my own family and I found this thing online where you could draw your family tree and it allowed for the right number of siblings that there, there technically are in my family. So I just did it quickly. So at the bottom in the middle is me. There we go, there's me. And then over to here is Barbara, who was the next one after me, and Callum, they were twins. Sadly, Barbara died when she was just four months old. And then Malcolm and Findy, my other two siblings. And then we go up, and there's my mum and my dad. My mum was English, but grew up in Scotland. And my dad, who grew up in the West Midlands of England. And on my mum's side, which is, I know, a little bit better than my dad's side, um, her, her, my, my grandma, Ina, was Ina Pash. She was an East London Jewess. And my grandfather, John Evans, he came from Portsmouth, I think. I always get mixed up between Portsmouth and Plymouth. But anyway, down there um, from a family a long, long line of Evanses that must have trailed back into to Wales at some point. So who knows, Jeff may be my 27 million times removed cousin. Um, on my grandma's side, we go back and we go into Holland because Henrietta van Raut was Dutch and Bernard Pasch, I think, was Dutch, possibly German, um, on the Jewish side. And um, going back another generation on the, the van Raut, so we actually have a rabbi. Um, so I have got Jewish rabbi stock in my family. And uh, on my granddad's side, we have a, somebody, Durand, who was French. So, you see, I'm not British. I hate to tell you this, but I'm not really British. I've got Dutch and German and French and goodness knows what. On my dad's side, um, my grandma, Minnie, was a Methodist local preacher. So preaching's in the genes, it seems. And um, I'm not quite sure what my granddad did. But on that side, it gets more vague. I'm not quite sure. I've not done the research. Some of my cousins have. But uh, I don't know who the people were. But, yeah, a very interesting family. Um, I have a bit of the who could, do you think you are as well. I'm going to out myself. My dad was a naughty boy. Um, somewhere in the north of England, I have a half-brother who I've never met because my dad was married to somebody before he was married to my mum. And he just left her. So, yeah, we've all got these interesting little skeletons in our story. And, of course, the other thing is that some of you may know and some of you may not know is Joyce is my 57th cousin, 28 times removed, because um, Joyce is also a Gorton. There you go. 
So, yeah, Joyce and Jeff, I'm sorry, you're probably somehow vaguely related through me. <laughs> Families, they spread wide and they spread far. I looked, I was trying to find out something about the, the church family, the family of the church denominations online. And this is something that the Americans do and the Brits don't, which is interesting because the way the Americans tell the story is certainly different from how the Brits tell the story about the time of the Reformation. But hey-ho, what they sort of sense is that way back, way, 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 way back, for the first century, there was just the church. Sorry, the first, roughly the first millennium even. There was just the church for about a thousand years. There were just Christians who formed up in different places and they would be what we would now call Catholic, but they didn't call themselves anything. And around about a thousand years on, there was a big divide between the East, the Orthodox Church, who had an emphasis on God's grace, uh, an orig- a doctrine of original grace that meant you were in, and the West that had this doctrine of original sin that meant you were basically bad and had to be concentrating on being forgiven. And the Orthodox Church, which we have in Greek and Russian forms predominantly, has pretty much carried on undivided. But the Western side has a huge family tree as people have, have divided for all sorts of reasons. So there was the Church of England, the ultimate church of convenience. When Henry VIII wanted to marry his brother's wife, he kind of set up his own church, and that's become a huge church. And away from the Church of England, later in time, came Methodists through the Wesleys. And from the the Methodists, we also then had the Salvation Army split off from that. On another side, we have the Lutherans and the Calvinists, and this is where the American family tree is wrong, because it says the Baptists came out of the Calvinists, and actually they didn't. There are Calvinist Baptists, but the earliest Baptists are not Calvinist. They were actually, they came from the English Midlands, they went to Holland, where they met the Anabaptists, and that's where they came from. But as you can see, the family tree gets bigger and bigger, and more complicated. And the church family tree, like human family trees, has got its, its skeletons and its black sheep and its people who um, were a problem and were a bit naughty. And it's got its saints and it's got its fascinating stories. But the thing is, actually, we are all family. And what connects us is Jesus. The, the desire to follow Jesus and the recognition that we are all God's children wherever we live and whatever flavor of Christianity it is that seems to suit us the best we are all part of the same family we are all God's children and that's what I want to start with our thoughts today really it doesn't matter that my dad was a naughty boy because we're all God's children it doesn't matter that people are have different ideas are different colors come from different lands, have different politics, whatever it is, because we're all God's children. And what unites us, surely, has to be more important than that where we disagree and differ. So we're going to sing a song that I have to confess I learned when I was about 12. Um, The words have changed over time by the author. Um, the, the author himself has changed the, the words slightly to make them a little bit more inclusive. Um, 
and then I, because I'm awkward, I wrote my own second verse today. Uh, I think it's fairly well known about amongst people kind of my age. Um, if you're a lot younger or a lot older, you might not know it, but we'll give it a go. And, and I think we're singing it just straight through? Yes. Repeat yes. the chorus, right. Thanks, Paul. The Bible reading this morning is from Romans 8, verses 14 to 39. 
All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the the glory of the children of God. I know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. back I was at the Baptist Assembly in England and the new general director of BMS World Mission Kang San Tan used part of this reading from Romans to talk about a groaning creation and a groaning God and that this should lead to a groaning church that responds in holistic mission. Mission concerned with ecology and economy, and justice, integrity, and peace, as well as spirituality. A mission that is inspired and directed towards the eschatological vision of a new heaven and a new earth, and that seeks to hasten the day when that comes to fulfilment by living those values in the here and now. I'm not going to repeat... Kan Sang Tan's sermon. This is my sermon based on a larger extract of that letter to the church in Rome. And what I'm attempting, I hope, is pastoral at least as much as practical, though of course the two are intimately connected. In the letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul sets out his thoughts on what it means to follow Jesus in a complicated and often bewildering world in the context of a community of fallible believers. Right at the start of the passage, we were reminded of our identity as children of God. Recognising that we have an inherent, inherent fallibility, we are only human. Our natural tendency is to be greedy or selfish or mean or rude. But we are adopted, we are incorporated into the family of God. And that is something that is inherently and inevitably transformative. As God's spirit lives within us and moves within us, we can recognise and address the faults and failings that deny our true humanity. So rather than the inwardly slowly dying a death of becoming increasingly dehumanised, actually we are given the strength and the courage and the ability to live life in all its fullness. But it's more than that. 
Part of the mystery expressed here is about what it actually means to be a child of God. In God's family, everybody has equal worth. Everybody is our sister or our brother. And that is incredible. But there's more to it than that. Actually, every single one of us, Wendy, is royal. Because we are all God's heirs. Every single one of us has the promise of the inheritance of God's kingdom alongside Jesus Christ. And that should give us pause for thought. Because if we think about how it works in human society, and the British royal family is as good a way to illustrate it as any, there is one heir. And so we have this line that goes the Queen, and then Prince Charles, and then Prince William, and then his children. And of course we had this interesting legal change that means Princess Charlotte holds her true place. She doesn't get bypassed by her brother. But it's one line, only one line of heirs, and everybody else cannot inherit the kingdom. But God's promise is different. It says we are co-heirs with Jesus. So Leo and Sylvia and Lilius and Ailey and Sally and Will and Jeff and Asan and Rory are all equally heirs with Christ in the kingdom as are all the people whose names I didn't say. And if that doesn't blow your mind, then can I suggest that maybe it should? Every single one of us is offered that same inheritance within the kingdom of God. That's truly amazing. The early church experienced persecution and struggle and they would often refer to that as sharing in Christ's suffering. So for them, the promise that they would share Christ's glory is incredibly precious. As a number of you know, I've just come back from a holiday in Rome and as part of that, I visited the Colosseum. And I must admit, I went to the Colosseum with very mixed feelings. I was interested in it as a beautiful piece of architecture and as a historically important site. But I was also aware that this was a place where countless brothers and sisters in Christ were executed, thrown to hungry animals to be killed as a spectator sport. I struggled with the Colosseum. And I struggled because a lot of the people there didn't even know what they were looking at. And so there were people with the arena behind them and their selfie sticks. Look at me. This is a place where our brothers and sisters died because they chose to follow Jesus. And for them, these promises, these promises that they were heirs with Jesus, were hugely important. And I think I've been really reminded of that in recent weeks as we shared in the baptisms of friends who have had to leave their homelands because that reality is there for them too. So as 
co-heirs with Christ. As brothers and sisters, as people in whom God's spirit dwells, we are able, at least in part, to see the whole world as God sees it and to feel about the world as God feels about it. And I think that affects the way we look at the world and everybody in it, or at least it should. The writings of Paul are complicated, and the bit we heard is a very good example of that. And there are theologians of every single persuasion who will use his writings to to support what they think about salvation, election, predestination, and a whole load of other issues. But in this reading, in which we actually hear Paul talk about election and predestination, we also catch a glimpse of his universalism. A universalism, at least, which speaks of the whole creation. So that has to include the animals, that has to include the plants, and yes, it even includes the rocks and the seas and the ground. And what he says is that creation has been prevented from fulfilling its purpose and that creation shares that hope of the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, I have to confess, I find it difficult to conceive how a rock can hope or a tree can be prevented from being a tree. But when I read the beautiful vision in Revelation of the new or renewed heaven and earth in which there is no death, no sorrow, no sinfulness, then I begin to sense perhaps a little bit of how that might be. The hope of all creation is to become that renewed heaven and renewed earth in which death and destruction and pain and sorrow have gone and it's as we read of this hope of creation that we hit the word groaning creation Paul says groans like a woman in labour now I've never been pregnant I have certainly never experienced labour so I know what it feels like but I think it's an incredibly powerful metaphor. And of course, there are many women here who, who have experienced that as well as women who haven't. And Sorry, men, you just don't get the chance on this one. But this is a groaning, a groaning towards something that is inherently good. It's not moaning. It's not complaining about the status quo. It's not just wishing everything would go away. Groaning is a natural response to pain or frustration, but it isn't negative. It isn't all about poor old me. What it does is it holds intention, the now, this is painful, this hurts, and the not yet, the hope of new life, a new child, a new world order. It holds together the frustration of disappointment with the hope of freedom and fulfilment. Moaning is not life-giving. Moaning is just destructive, negative. But groaning 
can be, and often is, a healthy thing. It's natural and it can be life-affirming. Creation groans. The movement of tectonic plates, coastal erosion by ocean waves, eruptions of lava from volcanoes or the hot water from geysers or geysers, depending where you grew up. These are normal. And these are the birth pangs of a planet that is evolving. Cities built on floodplains or fault lines, communities forced to live in the shadow of volcanoes, deforestation, fracking, mining and drilling, on the other hand, are human choices that can frustrate that natural development and put at risk the life of humans, animals and plants. Of course, it is awful when I read about people in parts of the north of England experiencing flooding for the umpteenth time. But somebody built those houses where floods happen. Humans make choices that are not always healthy. When I was reading a commentary this week, one of the the writers said this, Paul the Christian not only rejoices in the bounty of the earth, he resonates with its contradictions and tragedies because he finds therein mirrored his own eschatological dis-ease. Or, if I was to put that in plain English, or reasonably plain English, what we see in nature is the same internal struggle that we experience ourselves. I think I'd want to go a little bit further, though, and say the way that we treat this beautiful, fragile planet doesn't just say something about how we view creation, but actually about how we view each other and how we view ourselves. How do our lives line up with that Christian hope? Do we fall into the trap of unthinkingly seeing creation as disposable? It's just something that we use up because actually all that matters in the end are human souls? Or do we enter that frustration and groaning that is part of a vision that embraces the whole of creation? Creation groans as it labours towards its fulfilment. And we who are the co-heirs with Christ and who are also part of that creation should, t- should share in the tension of hopeful, groaning travail. So creation groans, and we groan, and also God groans. As Christians, we rightly place a lot of emphasis on prayer. And Sunday by Sunday, we bring our prayers for others to God. And Sunday by Sunday, a faithful band of volunteers will have laboured long and hard either to write the prayers themselves or to find in published resources something that will hold together that tension of lament and hope, of groaning and labouring. And it can be incredibly difficult to do that. And I think that's why so many people choose not to be part of that rotor. It's hard work, 
it's scary, and sometimes we don't know what to say or how to pray, because sometimes what's been happening has been just too awful for words. This week we have been reminded of the events at Grenfell Tower a year ago. How do you pray in response to that? Sometimes the tensions are really difficult. And sometimes, and I've certainly experienced in our own congregation, some things happened on the political stage that has left some of the congregation feeling happy and some of the congregation feeling absolutely distraught. And how do I pray into that situation? And if you're anything like me, sometimes when you try to pray, if anything comes out at all, it's just like... I don't know what to say, God. It's just um, a help. It's a groan. And here is the wonder. When we can't find the words, when all that comes out is a groan or a thigh or gobbledygook, God's spirit joins in with us. The NRSV translation that we heard this morning says, God's spirit prays with sighs that are too deep for words. Or in a more traditional translation, groans beyond our understanding. I can remember in my late teens that I was taught that what this means is that the Holy Spirit acts as a kind of translator. So we go, God, I know what to say. And the Holy Spirit just turns all that into nice words and nice prayers that God understands. But that actually isn't what Paul says. What Paul says is when we are lost for words... So is God. And that shouldn't perhaps surprise us because we say that we're made in God's image and likeness. So if we can become lost for words, why shouldn't God become lost for words? God looks at the mess that we have made of our lives or our world or our nations, our planet. God sighs. God groans deeply and loudly. So what does God do when words words fail? The scripture tells us that God's word became flesh and blood and shared our humanity. The gospels speak of a Jesus who wept at the grave of a friend who had died and he wept over a powerful city where the powers had gone astray. The Gospels tell us of a Jesus who raged against a religious system gone wrong, who healed the sick and welcomed those who were outcast. The Gospels tell us of a Jesus who slept soundly during a nighttime squall on an inland sea, who walked on the water and who could tell the winds and the waves, shh, stop it. Ultimately, the Gospels show us how in the death of a man called Jesus, God drew into the very heart of God's self all evil, all death, all sin, all that denies or destroys hope and flourishing. Beaten, dehydrated, humiliated, abandoned, barely able to open his mouth to speak. 
the dying Jesus said, it is accomplished. And this was and is and always will be where groaning becomes grace. God in the middle of the mess and the model. God as the bearer and promise of hope. God as the one who above all groans deeply and loves outrageously. And it's that, I think, which brings us to two of the most often quoted and precious promises that are found in this chapter of the letter to the church at Rome. The first in the NRSV is translated as all things work together for good for those who love God. And it's a legitimate translation. It's not the only possible translation. And frankly, to me, I think it's a very unhelpful translation. Because that's kind of saying even the bad things work together for your good. Well, really? There are other ways you can translate it. The second way is to say that God works for good in all things for those who love God. And I find that more helpful because it doesn't say somehow that bad things are good and okay that it happens to you. But it actually says in the bad thing, God is there with you and will help you to find the good that there could be. But there is, I think, I only discovered this about a year or two ago, a third and much more helpful way of reading this, which is that God works with those who love him in all things for good. God works with us in the whole of life for good. And that seems to me to fit with the idea of us being co-heirs with Jesus. It fits with the idea of us being the body of Christ in this place. And it fits with the holding together of that tension of groaning and grace. A God who is present in the struggle, in the pain, in the tension, not just watching, but actually active with us. Not controlling us, not magically making it all right, but helping us to work through it and come out the other side. And it also seems to me that this third understanding is the one that best connects with the amazing promise right at the end of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is really eloquent here. It's amazing poetry. He reels off this list of things that cannot separate us from God's love. We cannot be separated from God's love by ontology i.e. being alive or being dead. We cannot be separated by cosmology, heaven or earth, chronology, time and eternity, geography, nationality, socio-political authority, human activity. Whatever it is that you can think of, whatever it is that worries us, that diminishes us or demeans us, that cannot separate us from God and God's love. Because God is there with us in that. Wherever we are, 
however we feel, God is right alongside us and God is in that muddle with us. We can't earn that. We're not entitled to it. We can't buy it and we can't make it because it's grace. It's God's free gift. And I find that just very mind-blowing and very reassuring. In the midst of the confusion and the questioning, the doubting and the searching, on the days when the frustration or pain threaten to overwhelm us, we have a God who is very much present and who fully participates in our experience, labouring with us in the pursuit of hope. And of course, if we believe that, that affects the way we live every day. We live our lives in the light of that hope and we work for the incoming of that kingdom of God in which we are heirs. And pastorally, understanding God as like this and who we are in relation to God will help us to be people who are more empathetic or empathic, however you're supposed to say it, more forgiving, more understanding, more loving, as together and individually we are more and more transformed into the image of the invisible God who, in grace, adopts us as children and makes us co-heirs with Christ. Amen. And so we are going to sing a hymn which expresses something of what that might look like. God, in such love for us, lent us this planet, gave it a purpose in time and in space, small as a spark from the fire of creation, cradle of life and the home of our race.
Our prayers this morning are adapted from an Anglican litany of intercessory prayer, so they are general intercessions. When I say the words, Lord, hear us, would you please join with me in saying, Lord, graciously hear us. So I will say, Lord, hear us, and we say together, Lord, graciously hear us. Let us pray. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, holy, blessed and glorious Trinity, groaning and gracious, hear our prayers and have mercy upon us. Deliver us from all evil, vanity, hypocrisy, envy, hatred and malice. From sloth, greed, hardness of heart, and all that diminishes our true humanity. Be with us always, in all times of sorrow, in all times of joy, in the hour of death, and at the day of judgment. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. Hear our prayers for your church in all her diverse expressions. Fill it with love and truth and grant that it's unity that is your will. Give us boldness to preach the gospel in all the world and to make disciples of all nations. Enlighten all who minister with knowledge and understanding, that by their teaching and their lives they may proclaim your word. Give to your people grace to hear and receive your word, and to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. Hear our prayers for the leaders of the nations. Guard and strengthen all who govern, enduing them with wisdom and understanding. Bless those who administer the law, that they may uphold justice, honesty and truth. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. <coughs> hear our prayers for the world and all its people. Give us the will to use the resources of the earth for your glory and for the good of all. Bring your joy into all families. Strengthen and deliver those in childbirth. Watch over children and guide the young. Bring reconciliation to those in discord and peace to those in distress. Help and comfort the lonely, the bereaved and the oppressed. Heal the sick in body and mind and provide for the homeless, the hungry and the destitute. 
show your pity on prisoners and refugees and on all who are in trouble. Hear us as we remember those who have died in the peace of Christ, both those who have confessed the faith and those whose faith is known to you alone. Grant us with them your promised inheritance of a share in your eternal kingdom. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. Holy God, holy and strong, holy and immortal, have mercy upon us. Holy God, holy and groaning, holy and gracious, accept our prayers and grant us peace. In the name of Christ. Amen. Loving God, holy and gracious, generous and groaning, accept our gifts of money and accept our very selves that all be employed in the fulfilment of that hope of the renewed heaven and earth. Amen. So our closing hymn, God is working his purpose out.
God with us in the groaning and sighing. God with us in the joying and the laughing. God with us in the whole of life. Journey with us from this place that we may live the hope we profess now and always. Mm-hmm.